the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Hello and welcome to the Science Inside. I am Nondumi Solihuto and it is the very first week of a new month. Thank you, November. October really felt like it was not coming to an end. And because it's the first week, you know what that means for science. Yes, it is that show where we find out about impeccable women and men who are doing great things in their respective fields of science and technology. On the Science Inside tonight, we have an occupational therapist, Dr. Lee Getzeng Ned on the line. And I'm here to tell you that she has done amazing things for herself and, of course, science. Not only is she the youngest lecturer at the Center for Disability and Rehabilitation Studies at Stellenbosch University, she also arranges the postgraduate diploma in disability and rehabilitation, as well as another course in the master's program. Yes, don't take this slightly because over the years she has also obtained a master's in philosophy from UCT and a PhD in health sciences rehabilitation. Wow. Now earlier on this year she represented Stellenbosch University at the University of Helsinki in Finland in a research project that was centered on methods and practices of doing relevant disability research in the global south. We have her on the show tonight because her research interests are around disability studies, the integration of disabled people into into the community as well as indigenous knowledge, decolonial health and education. Her current research focuses on participatory visual methodologies to enhance community participation. So definitely stay tuned. We will definitely get into this very interesting research around the disabilities in the African context soon, soon. And Lindo, how about you tell us about what to expect on science, on unscience tonight, rather? Well, on unscience tonight, we'll be looking at something very unusual, as usual, where even pets could be the reason for their owners losing limbs by simply being affectionate. Wow, yeah, so you heard it. For now, we get into the news with Lindo Gutle Timagwe. This week's Science Headline. In your news making headlines this week, awareness continues for World Cancer Day, most trafficked wildlife product in the world protected by forensics. Good evening, I am Lindo Gutle Timagwe. In just 10 years, the lifetime risk of strokes for people over 25 increased from 1 in 6 to 1 in 4. With 90% of strokes associated with 10 modifiable risk factors, the potential impact of prevention measures is clear, and that is what drove this year's World Stroke Day campaign. In the run-up to the World Stroke Day 2019, which took place on 29 October, the World Stroke Organization, known as WSO, continued with mobilizing and equipping members, partners and stakeholders with communication resources to help raise awareness of individual stroke risks and prevention. A stroke is a disease affecting the arteries of the brain. Whenever an artery carrying oxygen and nutrients to the brain gets obstructed by a clot known as ischemic stroke or ruptures known as hemorrhagic stroke, the specific part of the brain where this happens dies. There is also the possibility of a mini or temporary ischemic stroke caused by a floating clot temporarily blocking the blood supply. The effect of any type of stroke, also known as brain attack, is debilitating. Restricted blood flow alters or stops the function of that specific part of the brain sometimes leading to paralysis. 
with the core message of hashtag don't be the one, where one refers to the one out of the four people who will have a stroke at some point in their lives. This year's World Stroke Day campaign contributes to the World Stroke Organization's overarching ambition to decrease the high rates. Leveraging mobile technology in the form of the widely translated Stroke Riscometer app and provides a series of public information leaflets focused on the top 10 modifiable risk factors for stroke. Since June 2019, the World Stroke Organization has started a campaign to raise awareness about the risk of stroke to each and every individual worldwide. For this, supporting members, partners and communities aim to arm people with information and the tools to protect them from strokes. To support on and offline awareness activities, a range of communication resources have been developed. From posters to social media posts, videos to infographics, which one can access a high-quality toolkit to support their participation in the World Stroke Day campaign. A 2017 survey conducted by the Indian Council of Medical Research found that Indians are at a higher risk of developing strokes compared with people living in the U.S. It also mentioned that there are 105 to 152 cases of stroke per 100,000 Indians. Every minute, three Indians suffer a stroke in such a high prevalence, it helps to know how strokes can be prevented. High blood pressure increases the risk of stroke as blood pressure should always be maintained below 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury. A reduction in consumption of junk food, saturated fat and salt intake is the key. Also, consuming four to five servings of fruits and vegetables a day helps a higher fat content in the body is another risk factor for stroke. Maintaining one's weight could prevent the occurrence, the occurrence of diseases such as high blood pressure and diabetes, both of which increase the risk for a stroke. Exercise is also extremely essential as it ensures good blood flow through the arteries, reducing the risk of a clot formation as well as that of other diseases that could be a potential risk factor for stroke. Ideally, 30 minutes of exercise daily is necessary necessary for arterial health. If regular exercise routine is too much, walking for half an hour in the yard after dinner is as beneficial. Studies indicate that having one drink a day might decrease the risk, but having two increases stroke occurrence. If an individual cannot drink in moderation, it's better that they don't drink at all. Red wine is considered to be the best option as it has resveratrol that shows protective action for the brain and heart. Uncontrolled diabetes is quite risky and smoking makes the blood thicker and induces plaque formation in the arterial walls. It increases stroke probability. Warm support and encouragement are given out to all who share common cause with stroke prevention to get involved. And on to our next story. A typical home in the southern Chinese city of Nanning is an inviting place. The room would be packed with intricately carved furniture with a dining table flanked by straight-back chairs, a coffee table, a desk and a TV stand, each piece made of rosewood. Rosewood furniture is part of their great national cultures with over 5,000 years of history. The furniture is a major status symbol in China, by far the largest importer of rosewood. A canopy bed can fetch as much as $1 million and an estimated 30,000 companies in China are involved in rosewood industry, which generated a domestic revenue of over $22 billion in 2014. Demand for the beautiful dock pieces come at a price, as rosewood is the most trafficked wildlife product in the world based on market value. More than elephant ivory, rhino horns, pangolin scales combined. More than one-third of illegally traded plants and animals seized between 2005 and 2014 were rosewood, according to the World Life 
World Wildlife Seizures Database. Rosewood is a broad term referring to the darkest, most uniformly coloured hardwoods that come from several genera. The trees are found primarily in the Southeast Asia, Africa and Latin America, all areas experiencing forest loss because of logging and trafficking of the wood. Since many species are involved and not all are protected by regulating from over-harvesting, identifying and trafficked wood is a challenge. Scientists are trying to help by applying techniques including microscopy, chemical and genetic analyses that might allow easier identification of wood. The genetic approach called DNA barcoding is being tested for other endangered species as well, including sharks, elephants and parrots. Learning the species and origin of rosewood logs that have been felled will not save the forests, but the hope is that better identification will allow easier prostitution of traffickers, discouraging them from taking down more trees. Rosewood trees, many of which take centuries to grow to full maturity, are important within their ecosystems. In Madagascar, home to some of the world's most valuable Dalbergia species, the trees are crucial forest habitats for lemurs. One litter of red variegated lemurs was seen nested in about 40 large mature trees in Mesoela National Park, according to the research published in September 2018 in the American Journal of Primatology. Regulatory efforts to protect the world's rosewood trees have increased, at least on paper. Since 2017, all of the world's Dalbergia species, more than 300, as well as some other rosewoods, have come under the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or CITES, an international agreement that protects endangered animals and plants by restricting their trade across borders. Before that, only seven rosewood species were protected by CITES. At, at the site's meeting in August, P. tinctorius, an African rosewood that has been harvested heavily in recent years, was added to the list. While forensic science offers a glimmer of hope in the fight against deforestation, the fate of rosewood will depend largely on how well the trade is controlled in China. It will take a cultural and political shift to convince people to see that these trees are more than beautiful furniture worth collecting. Recapping your stories this week, awareness continues for World Cancer Day and most trafficked wildlife product in the world protected by forensics. Sure. So, Lindo, you mentioned um, about how we need to actually see how we consume alcohol mm-hmm. you know you mentioned in the, in the news that red wine should not be over consumed mm-hmm. how about you how about you what 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 do you take on that well of course um one while well, awareness continues for the wild cancer day right yes. as it was on tuesday um it is noted that people it's very important for people to decrease on the on the alcohol consumption uh, for the fact that if you can't um, consume in the normal way, which is one glass a day, if you go further than that, then obviously you, you're risking your life. Exactly. Yeah, just last week we spoke about cancer. So, I mean... We have to just take care of ourselves. Literally. Right, so let's go on to a short break and then we get straight into it. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back. You're still with the Science Inside. Now on the line tonight, we have Dr. Lee Getzeng Ned, an occupational therapist who has made it her vocation to specialize in disabilities and rehabilitation. Dr. Ned is also a deputy chairperson of the advisory board of the Western Cape Rehabilitation Center, as well as an advisory member of the African Network for Action to Action in Disability. A good evening and a very warm welcome to the Science Inside, Dr. Ned. Dr. Ned, are you there? 
Hello. Yes, I'm. I'm here. Thank you for welcoming me on the show. Of course. Now, tell us about your your current research on participatory visual methodologies. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so basically, my interest in participatory visual methodologies stems from my doctoral study. So, more specifically, um, I was really thinking about how to best disseminate. Uh, the knowledge of Amabung Vani uh, in ways that um, they can also continue to play an active role in the process like we did during the PhD class. So um, I believe that working together with uh, the community should never end because now I've got the degrees, uh, because they've got so much to offer in terms of knowledge production and gradually growing the academy. So these participatory methodologies then are about researching with the community and, and not just about the community. And uh, some of the mechanisms that I, I, I do this or intend to do this is as follows. In sense, I, I, I tend to run a series of workshops that encourage dialogue and share the reflexivity on the process of dissemination with the community and to document these participatory processes and in the workshops and the shared outcomes. As well as try and identify with the community a framework for inclusive research dissemination and policy dialogue that is contextually relevant and appropriate uh, to the community. Mm. And, and, and at the end of this, we really aim towards uh, collaboratively producing a documentary film as a participatory visual tool for dissemination. Um, you're probably aware that uh, commonly the traditional way of disseminating research is in written form um, through publishing, for instance, like the dissertation or research reports or even academic articles. And often the community here is rarely involved in the process and even that their identities are always hidden. So I am then um, using these forms of, of, of dissemination which are more participatory um, as a way of of, of, um, of trying to undo the reproduction of exclusion of co-researchers. And I intentionally call them co-researchers because I believe that they are co-creators of knowledge in the research process and they live in their everyday life. So in every work that I do, then I always um, ensure that the community plays a huge role. Yeah, in both generating and disseminating knowledge. So the question that I always ask myself is how can I enhance participation of co researchers? Because in their own right, they are actually researchers blind pursuit of answers to the questions that they have been struggling with survival. So so participatory methodology became the answer for me. Um and, and, and these are traced back uh, to some aspects of many theories, like the work of color frames, for instance, in the pedagogy of the epochal. So that's where they actually stem from in the there that really enhance community participation and are community led and right. really allow you to to, to, to engage um, with the community more in depth and spend more time in the community. So Dr. So Ned, Dr. Ned, you've mentioned um, 
a lot about enhancing community participation. Through what means, what is it that has been, that you have been doing that has been getting the community involved also, especially with this research that you're doing? So I'll make an example for instance. There's um, a project that's, um, which is more about disability and less about uh, focusing on the indigenous people um, without disability. So in Bursa, for instance, um, I had a project there which I was leading because uh, titled um, uh, Coordinating a Collaborative Response to the Use of Persons with Disabilities. And the way this project was was framed as how how does the university work together with the community um, as well as the clinical educators so that whatever the students are learning in the community they are doing the community as part of the practice they involve the community as much as possible so that they take the community takes ownership of things um, and that it can continue once the students have um, actually left. Uh, the community. Yes. So um, this then makes the community to lead the process to meet and reduce issues of um, sustainability. So mm-hmm. um, uh, what is often recommended then in particular work is that we use methods that um, sort of shift the power then to the community. So they inform the process, they are involved in decision making. Um, and this is similar then to the work that I was doing um, and I continue to do with Amabu Mbani in LAB. Right. I, when I, when I, I went in for my PhD mm-hmm. from community entry, I was there to basically listen to the community to guide me what is the better way of conducting research, guide me, let me learn. So, I also go there to the community to learn and not just to see myself as the knower and the community has to learn from me. So realizing that this process is actually the secret card and we all learn from each other and we do together. Wow. Okay. That is very profound, um, Doctor. And you know you 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 have spoken about um how we we have abandoned our own knowledges um, in your thesis mm-hmm. about health, you know, and how would you describe the relationship that Africans have with disabilities? Okay. Um, the relation, you mean the relationship that they have with health or with disability? Sorry? A disability, yeah. Uh, with disability. Yes. Okay, so, so basically, in, in the time that I've been um with uh doing disability work that is both in teaching and researching uh, there's quite um a dominant uh, narrative that has been created about Africa specifically in terms of how we understand disability and this is mostly about superstition mm. and for me um having a studied um issues of indigenous knowledges and issues of indigenous knowledge systems are actually beginning to learn that there's actually more than that. This notion that we only understand disability as related to superstition is just one single narrative of it. And for me, it really, it really dates back to some of the things that happened in Africa as we know that we've got to this history of um, uh, colonization um, as well as apartheid in South Africa and the Africans. Mm-hmm. 
So like this has done then, it was not only a process of extracting minerals, but it also extracted people's knowledge and made people believe that they have no knowledge, but only super, they are only superstitious. Mm. And this definitely makes people believe that they are inferior. So a lot of um, what we understand today then is informed by that. So when you interview people about disability, that is often the definition that they give you that uh, people are possessed, uh, 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 this is witchcraft and all that. But there are other ways that people actually understand disability in Africa. And, 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 and in fact, even the term itself, disability, most indigenous communities do not relate with it because there's no such term that is translated um, to our own languages and of our own languages. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the like, things that we continue to persevere in terms of going in depth to say how, how do indigenous communities actually understand uh, disability and, and, and that kind of disability doesn't come up when people speak about that. So, so, so all that, that history then has um, uh, uh, given back to more negative uh, terminology that is used to refer to. Mm. But all these things actually came with um, this history that we have. And often it's only so difficult to delineate is to say, okay, what 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 is really truly indigenous mm-hmm. and what is um uh, influenced by the colonial regime. And the of doing. Right. Sure. Now let's bring Prof. Eleluani Ramugondo into the picture. Here's what she had to say about Dr. Ned. I met in 2011 at a writer's retreat um, where she joined us, um, having been invited by one of my colleagues, uh, Professor Teresa Lorenzo. Um, following that, uh, Dee, as we like to call her, joined um, us uh, at UCT. At the time, I was the head of division of occupational therapy. Um, so she joined us in 2013 as a clinical educator in the community development practice cluster. And I was very sad uh, when uh, we could not keep her because uh, we did not, uh, as a university, offer her a permanent um, appointment. And Stellenbosch uh, was faster and they um, did not waste time um, in, 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 in seeing talent and, and, and offering um, the, a, a, a position uh, for, as a lecturer there. And then in 2014, um, uh, Dee approached me to join her team. This was at the time when she was still thinking about doing her PhD. Um, she later registered in 2016 and uh, I became formalized as one of her supervisors uh, for a very exciting research project, which is truly decolonial. And um, yes, I I was very uh, fortunate and I felt very privileged to have um, uh, journeyed uh, on on this um, uh, project uh, with Dee uh, from 2016 
2019. So effectively, uh, Dr. Dieke Sengned completed her PhD in three years um, and, and doing this part-time. This is a, a mean feat. Not many people are able to do this. Um, Dr. Dieke Sengned is highly driven, uh, very clear about uh, engaging the question of, of decoloniality and, and, and doing it through praxis and, 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 and scholarship um, and uh, with uh, findings that are absolutely revolutionary. And um, I know that uh, it's the beginning of um, a lot of meaningful work with communities um, where uh, very uh, rich uh, information about the value of indigenous knowledge systems came about. Wow, Dr. Ned, isn't that wonderful that what she's saying about you? It's so great. It's always um, good to hear how other people see you and I'm very appreciative of, of that message from her. Right, sure. Now I think she's my greatest cheerleader. <laughs> oh, that is so wonderful. Now, back to this um, question of your research. What challenges have you experienced in trying to involve Africans, rural, indigenous and disabled people in developing a mm. very diverse disability and rehabilitation study scholarship? Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, it's, it's a constant, tiring struggle, actually, of fighting for existence of the most uh, marginalized um, people um, in, 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 in the global south, basically, mm. um, and the denial of, of their existence comes with denial of, 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 of knowledges that, that they actually uh, produce daily. So you see in, in disability and rehabilitation studies, I think like many other fields, is still also dominated by theorizing from the north. So there's always this unequal power between the north and the south. So even for most of us who are actually based in the South physically, we are still thinking heavily from knowledge depositories of the North. Mm. And another issue then, which is a challenge that is related to this um, epistemic issue is funding, where funders have their own agendas, which serve to reproduce this marginalization of others. And funders then are mostly from the north, and that's shaping the discourse and shaping the practices that are happening. So one is constantly required to wait. Do I go for this funding and be true to my, to, do I basically let go for, of this funding and be true to my values, mm. or do I sell myself and, and do what the funders um, uh, want? So, sure. so, so I think it's very important for me that we constantly think about these questions, particularly because there's often a dismissal of other knowledges and other ways of doing. So in such contexts, then the, the North basically becomes the yardstick and is seen as superior. And that is a challenge um, as, um, as researchers that we are experiencing, especially when we are pushing for decolonial work. And universities, which are spaces that we are in, are guilty of maintaining and upholding this asymmetric relationship. With a refusal, with a refusal to take indigenous um, scholars seriously, 
So then um, what I've specifically um, encountered many times is that when, when, when I bring this intersectional lens then which looks into the knowledges, marginalized knowledges of other groups like black people, women, disabled people, there are sometimes this very subtle silence in questions where um, this knowledge is 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 not genuinely critiqued, yeah. but uh, critiqued based on the standards of Western knowledge. Yeah. So sometimes, for example, you'll hear comments like, uh, "Be careful, uh, be careful not to romanticize or essentialize indigenous knowledges," and this is okay, but often it is used as a manner um, of silencing and and patronizing. Okay. So this is because um, often when when you when you start raising issues of decolonial research, you push the academy to think about what they do not often think of, um, and you push them to respect those they constantly push to the zones of no thought, to the zones of dehumanization. So, so for me, these are challenges that I'm, I'm, I'm facing daily, and it's it's not easy. But I continue asserting myself and entering this discussions because for me it's all about asserting the humanity of people who are constantly dehumanized but the challenge is that we then do this work of challenging within university spaces that continue to uphold such such structural and systemic dehumanization so this then continues to reproduce underlying injustices so my attempt then in, in going for more participatory and decolonial research is about undoing this um, through these uh, ways of doing all right now dr ned when you look at south africa in general it's quite diverse so in what ways mm. do you think that your work can affect the way we live here Mm. So, so I, I think that um, can be located um, back to our history. So, South Africa as a country emerges from a colonial regime and apartheid, like I said, and and what this has done is this extraction of uh, people's knowledges. So, I think more than anything, this type of research that I do is um, more about encouraging people to 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 start doing the questioning, often questioning the unquestioned, to peeling deeper and searching for diverse ways of knowing, diverse ways of doing, being and living, and not be scared to do that, and even reach out um, for support um, so that we can really build a community of, of, of questioners and, and, and thinkers. Um, what what, it, what this type of work also does for me is uh, is this deconstruct the identity of research communities from being seen as objects of research to repositioning them strategically as questioners and thinkers as well. And most importantly, I think uh, what it does, it also deconstructs the, the rural urban divide in knowledge production and dissemination and really centers rural communities as contributors in the transformation of the academy as well as uh, producing knowledges that are of better service to to, to humanity. Mm. And I think this research can really be integrated in all fields. So it's not only within disability studies, but um, across all fields as a process of undoing the colonial history of research. So I do encourage people to take this further in their respective fields. Yeah. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Doctor. Um, Could you please hold for us? Uh, We're going to be with you shortly. Okay, thank you. So for you, please stay listening. Next up, we have Unscience. 
Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. It's that time in the show where we get a little silly, where we look at strange research and interesting studies that have piqued the interest of scientists and researchers. Sometimes the research is quirky and at times it's just ridiculous. So let's get into it. Today's On Science was produced by Lindo Gutle Timakwe. So Nondu, I'm really curious. What is that one way that family, friends and other loved ones show you affection? Well, myself, me, I'm a hugger. So literally being in the arms and getting tons of kisses from my mom still makes me the happiest person on earth. Mm, Interesting. It's funny that you mentioned kisses, eh? I was just thinking about how I've heard many people talking about how annoying it can get when you bump into a stranger at the mall who'll be so excited to see you, telling you how much you've grown from the time they changed your nappies. And then boom, before you know it, they've kissed you. But genuinely from joy. <laughs> you tell me about those. I'll be honest. I'm never really comfortable with those. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the person. So not only is it weird, but sometimes it's a bit off-putting. I know, yeah. I know. I really don't blame you. One can easily get infectious mononucleosis, otherwise known as kissing disease. But this gets even worse. If your dog kisses you, you could even die. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? Yeah. Being the dog lover that I am, are you trying to say that I shouldn't allow my dogs to run up to me and show me how much they've missed me when I get home? Well, like yourself, a man named Greg Manchifel has loved dogs all his life. But a dog's kiss nearly killed him in June. Because of an infection caused by contact with dog saliva, Manchifel's legs and hands were amputated and more than a month later, he had to be hospitalized waiting for more surgeries. Wait, are you sure this was not a stray dog or something? (laughs) What? What exactly happened? Well, this was a very healthy dog. His very own one, actually. The problem started out with like um, flu-like symptoms. When his wife came home from working third shift June 26th, her husband told her he'd been throwing up and his legs ached. So as usual, she recommended water and Tylenol. Okay, I'm listening. Well, a day later... Manchufel's 25-year-old son, Michael, heard his father stirring early in the morning, speaking all gibberish. He could barely walk and had diarrhea. As Manchufel attempted to reassure his son, the only person home at that time, Michael had to call family members and that is when he had to be taken to the hospital. But was everything that was wrong happening internally? Unfortunately not. Within minutes, bruises and blemishes appeared on his face, chest, legs, stomach and back. So now the hospital determined a life-threatening sepsis infection that had set in and they didn't have the equipment needed to handle his, you know, bacteria-packed blood. He had to be sent to a hospital a few kilometers away um, from home for antibiotics and surgery. So, all of this because of a small lick from an excited, healthy dog? What could possibly be the cause, Lindo? Well, to cut a long story short, doctors determined his leg muscles and hands were dying. They amputated his legs below the knees and removed the hands in a following surgery, after exhausting options to save them. They soon discovered that um, nearly a quarter of his nose had to be removed in an upcoming surgery as well. The cause of all of this, bacteria from dog saliva that caused a rare blood infection. Sure, so what is this bacterium? Well, it's a mouthful, no pun intended. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Capnocytophaga canimosus. 
and it is a bacterial pathogen found in healthy dogs and cats. Yes, I said healthy. There are more than 700 different types of bacteria in a dog's mouth. While rare, people have contracted this bacterium, usually through, you know, dog bites and unfortunately have died. This doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it was simply licking, not Mm -hmm. biting, but it still had detrimental effects. Licking can also prompt infection as was the likely case of a 70-year-old greyhound owner who made a full recovery after two weeks of intensive care, according to a 2016 BMJ medical report. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention knows infections are more likely to occur in adults of 40 and older, and risk factors include alcoholism and weak immune system, and another risky factor is not having a spleen. Sure, but... What does this mean for pet owners? Is this everywhere? I mean, infections caused by that word are not notifiable. Because basically, I'm assuming cases like these are not routinely reported. True. I mean, doctors who do, however, um, suspect Mentufal, who was not bitten, they do kind of sus- suspect that he, he wasn't bitten or scratched, mm-hmm. picked up the bacteria through a dog lick and then touched his mouth or eye. Um, Casey Barton... A veterinary epidemiologist said tests for the bacteria are available, but not, uh, but but they they actually might not be useful for this kind Mm -hmm. of diagnosis. So now, according to Casey, tests for the bacteria itself, which is common in the mouths of up to 74% dogs and up to 57% cats, could be negative one day but positive another, depending on you know environmental factors. Yeah. One thing I know for sure is that there isn't a single household, including mine, that would be willing to get rid of their dogs. I mean, we form solid bonds with those four-legged creatures. What do we do from here? Well, I totally relate. The steps are quite simple, and we all know them. To avoid the risk of infection from pets, regularly washing hands after contact is recommended. Closely supervising children around pets and regularly taking your pet to a vet are very, very crucial. Sure, Linda, I must tell you, I mean, I have pets at home and I don't know how I'm going to adjust now that you've told me this. You know, as everyone does, like I said, I have a very sacred relationship with my dogs and yo, wow, this was very interesting. Now listen, we will be back in a few, just stay tuned. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. You're still with The Science Inside. And we are chatting with Dr. Li Gezeng Ned, whose research premises on decolonizing the knowledge on health and well-being. In her research, she poses that coloniality and colonial education should be recognized as a major contribution to ill health, which is absolutely impeccable. Now we get a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more up close and personal with Lee Kitsing Ned. Welcome back, Dr. Ned. Thank you. You know, it's not every day that we hear that women are achieving great things in their scientific fields. Um, mm-hmm. Right, so doctor, uh, your, ni- your name kind of strikes me as a pseudonym, not to mention your three-lettered surname. Tell me more about <laughs> your name and how it came about, especially in the Eastern Cape, a non-Sutu-speaking area. Yes, it, yeah. it is uh, a pseudonym. You are correct about that. Yeah. And uh, my father is Sutu. My mum is is Kosa. But I I don't really have a clear um, story about how it came about. But what I know 
is that when I was born, both my mother and my father were expecting a boy. They wanted to have a boy, uh-huh. so they have they didn't have any name for me. They had a boy's name prepared, and when I then came, not being a boy, being a girl, they didn't have a name. And one of my uncles then gave me this name, which was which is Bekeze. It really is about adding more. So I guess I was adding more girls. Uh, instead okay. of the boy that they were expecting, yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's where the name comes from. But the family itself um, is Sotho, and that's where we get exposed to Sotho. Right. But at home, we we are more closer. I know if it's closer more than Sotho, for instance, because even throughout my education system, I studied if closer as my first language. All right. So now I'm sure the accolades you've managed you've managed to achieve. Um, you didn't get them quite easy. Um, what advice mm-hmm. or words helped you get through it, like from family members and all of that? Mm-hmm. Um, I I think more more so the, the the support. Firstly, the scholarship itself from NRS made things extremely easier for me because I managed to have dedicated time to work on my studies in the form of sabbatical leave while I employed someone using NRS money to 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 do my teaching duties, for instance, at work, because I was working full-time while I was doing this PhD part-time. So all this was possible through the resources then that I was given by NRS. Uh, so the outcome of this then is what Elilwani, for instance, is saying, that I was able to finish my PhD within the term that I had set, which was three years. Uh, so from 2016 to um, uh, 2018 when I submitted and graduated in April 2019. So this was a great milestone to achieve for me, um, being a single mother but also working full time. So my family also then comes into the picture very well in the sense that they've been extremely supportive where I needed to go for data collection and do all this traveling. Uh, my mom and my sister have always been available to assist me with looking after my son and uh, of course friends as well played such a crucial role uh, and then personally uh, in terms of me how I work um, I think uh, the advice I would give uh, for people pursuing their studies and generally the outlook on how to live your life is basically discipline and consistency that's how I, I live my life um, always striving for for a balance um, I set my timelines and goals for myself and I make sure that I stick to these. Mm-hmm. One thing that helps me is to always not skip my gym sessions because that gets me into that relaxed um, mode mm-hmm. and I manage to think better and, and, and feel fresh in a way. Okay. So um, one, one of, one of uh, I think one of the characteristics that my friends and colleagues always say as well in terms of how I managed to, to, to achieve um, such uh, milestones at such a young age is that I seem to be very much internally motivated. Uh, mm-hmm. So they usually say when they describe me is that if I put my mind onto something, I go exactly for that and I don't let anything disrupt that plan. All right. Speaking of balancing, you know, you're speaking of going to gym and just being self-motivated. I would like to assume that when one gets to varsity and 
works hard and achieves what you've achieved. It doesn't just start out of mm. nowhere. It, it, we go back to primary to high school. So how are you able to balance schoolwork and house chores? Were your parents understanding back then? Because I'm sure you were still as competitive and still as motivated. Mm. Well, at, at school, if I look back to my basic education, um, I basically just focused on my studies. I didn't have anything else. Mm. Uh, so I wouldn't say I was uh, balanced then okay. <laughs> because of, of that. Uh, I think we grew, we grew up um, in a very uh, strict uh, parents who prioritized education. My mom used to say, um, your only husband is your education. No one will take that education from you. That's so that, that, is how, uh, <laughs> that is how we grew up. So, so it was just focusing on that. And I think I possibly learned how to push myself from, from there. And then it's only after uh, adversity when then I started experiencing my own uh, independence slightly and basically paving the way and making more of my decisions in terms of what I want to do, um, which field I want to go into. And then I started then planning my life like that. And I learned from there that um, I need to live by my goals and have goals if I want to achieve things. Because if you don't have goals, then how will you be able to know um, where you need to grow as a person? True. True. Sure. Doctor, you mentioned about your mom saying basically books before boys, right? (laughs) Um, Now, you have completed your PhD in three years, something that we heard is unheard of, you know. So Mm. how did you do that in the midst of having your child and balancing work now out of the high school? Yes. Um, So, basically, so I got my I got pregnant when I was doing my master's so I was already done with my undergraduate degree and I was in my second year of working uh, while also doing then the master's uh, part-time and I think what I did for myself from then onwards was to plan and say okay from eight to four, I'm at work and my son is with daycare because throughout my life, I've actually never had um, a least in many. I've always relied on educators. So I would, uh, we, we wake up in the morning, I drop mm-hmm. my son at school, I go to work, I come back, I pick him up, we go to gym. After gym, we come back home, we eat, I put him to sleep, after doing homework, obviously, um, and when he's asleep, that is my time of focusing on my own studies, and that is the pattern I followed throughout from my masters all the way to a PhD, and that worked well for me because I'm more of a person who works better at night mm-hmm. when everyone is sleeping. So if you want me to wake up in the morning at 2 a.m., for instance, to work, you won't get anything out of me. In fact, I won't even wake up. Mm-hmm. So 2 a.m. is my time to sleep when I'm done working. So so that's the plan that I consistently followed throughout until I submitted that PhD. Sure. I really wish that I could also just follow into that pattern. You really doing everything. Now, you grew, you grew up in Mount Fletcher, previously known as the Transkei in Eastern Cape. How was your experience yes. there? Uh, well, the, the experience there, 
I would say that it's a very small town. It's it's very difficult for you as a young person to get exposure to many things or a variety of, of options. So um, I think for us growing up, we, we didn't even have a, t- a television, for instance. So the exposure was really um, very minimal. So we relied heavily on what parents, for instance, told us. Um, and I think that's what even shaped the field that I went to. I was fortunate that um, our parents really advised us to go for fields, for instance, that are not so common. Mm. So uh, though my mom uh, was a nursing assistant and my father was a physiotherapy assistant, they really pushed us to say, look at these fields. Um, that's how I entered into occupational therapy. Initially, I wanted social work. But then I, I was then diverted to occupational therapy because there was recently an occupational therapist that was appointed there and then I started speaking to 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 that occupational therapist. So so it's 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 I think areas like Mount Fletcher and other small towns or even rural areas it's very difficult because you hardly see these um role models, positive role models you you hardly really get exposed to what is really possible or even imagine the impossible mm. so 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 it's really difficult um but i but i think i i speak as someone who is slightly privileged here so 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 my template may not really work for for everyone that is that is true sure so doctor which aspect of your research hits close to home for you it's it's mostly the indigenous knowledges Mm. i think that for me takes me back to um how i grew up the knowledges that um i was being taught at home uh, even uh, outside the schooling so basically um centering the home as a learning site there which is something that is rarely done and people always sideline their home and I think our schooling system is also built in that way mm. in that the knowledge is from the home, the knowledge is from the grandmothers, the knowledge is from the mothers is not really recognized as uh, as a valid knowledge. So that's why my study which was basically looking at education and how indigenous people interact with the education system and its knowledge really takes me back to that home to say how about we look at these knowledges and 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 how the education system, as they say, Amabonvane, is basically marginalizing further their own knowledges, and because of that, it feels like an attack to their own subjectivities. Mm. And when an attack is to their own subjectivities, they experience uh, issues of identity crisis, which to them heavily plays a negative role on their health and well-being. So that is why for me it it relates so well because I often think about how we grew up, everything that we learned at home and how I kept searching for this throughout my education system and I couldn't find it. Sure. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Ned, for your time. We're definitely looking forward to reading more and more of your work. For you. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me to the show. Great. For you at home, we will be back after the break. This is the Science Inside.
As our tradition for the first week of every month on the Science Inside, we give hard-working scientists and innovators a platform to talk about their work and the impact that their research has in their field. This week we were in conversation with Dr. Lee Getzing, Ned, whose latest research focuses on decolonizing the education around health while shifting the focus to our own indigenous knowledges to improve our health and overall well-being. And on Unscience, we uncovered how your dog's saliva could carry bacteria that might be detrimental enough for you to lose your leg or arm. But that was it on tonight's show. I'd like to thank all the guests featured on tonight's show, including Dr. Likizeng Ned and one of her doctoral supervisors, Professor Elwani Rumugondo. The team behind the scenes is production by Nundumi Soluhuzo, Bridget Lubere, Zainab Bayetz, and Tech by Kutwan Noserame. Our podcast can be found on vits.journalism.co.za slash science and on iTunes. On social media, we are on Facebook and Twitter as at VAUFM. The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. From myself and the team, have yourselves a very good night. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.